to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Today, I want to talk about several big stories of the week. The opening night of the 2020 Democrat National Convention, where hyperbole and downright lies were the order of business. And I want to talk about the so-called peaceful demonstrations that were actually violent riots in Portland, Oregon, that nearly cost a man his life. And the first shoe to drop in the deep state investigation as FBI attorney Kevin Kleinsmith pleads guilty for his tampering with an official email in order to skew the evidence in an application for a Pfizer warrant. And one more story, the normalization of relations between Israel and the United Arab Emirates. That is groundbreaking, and it's really something to talk about. Big stories with a lot to cover. So let's get started with the opening night of the DNC. It was everything we thought it would be, (laughs) and very little of what we thought it should be. The main thrust of it all was bash Donald Trump. Let's get Donald Trump. And also to praise the Democrats as the cure for all the evil that Donald Trump represents to them. Now, one of the speakers was John Kasich, a Republican. He was unimpressive when he ran for president in the primaries in 2016 And he was formerly governor of Ohio, where he also did a pretty bad job. When Aaron Burnett, a CNN anchor, asked him why he decided to speak at the Democrat convention when he was a Republican, he told her, quote, I had to search my conscience when the Democrats asked me to speak. I had to think about it. And I believe we need a new direction. We just can't keep going the way we are going, unquote. Well, that's about as plain vanilla a reason as I can think of. But then, that's John Kasich. Now, the focus of the first night of the Democrat convention was the repeated reference to the Black Lives Matter movement, but but neither presumptive nominee Joe Biden nor any of the other speakers made any kind of policy commitments to address what they considered to be racial injustice. So then there was Joe Biden himself. He held an online conversation with several people, all of them on screens, of course, because this was a virtual convention. And uh, among the people that he was talking to were Jamira Burley, who was uh, an activist, social justice activist, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot, and NAACP President Derek Johnson, and Gwen Carr, the mother of Eric Garner, who was um, a black man killed by a white cop in 2014 in New York. To this group of activists, Biden said this, quote, most cops are good, but the fact is that the bad ones have to be identified and prosecuted and out, period, unquote. Now, the first part of that was most cops are good. And boy, did he get a rush of very nasty comments on social media because he said that. I wonder how that will play out at the polls in November. 
Will would-be voters decide that he really isn't the guy they thought he was because he thinks some cops are good and decide not to vote at all? Okay, so then Bernie Sanders spoke and he warned everybody who was listening that Biden was America's last hope from what he called the authoritarianism of the Trump administration, which he said was a threat to our democracy. That is, Sanders said that Trump's administration and the way in which he runs it is a threat to our democracy. That's funny, because to my way of thinking, the exact opposite is true. Bernie Sanders is promoting a socialist agenda where power will be concentrated in the government and which Biden has apparently bought into. That is the antithesis of our democracy. So if anyone is a threat to America as we know it, it is Joe Biden, so long as he buys into this socialist agenda. But just to underscore his message, for his parting shot, Sanders warned America that, quote, the future of our planet is at stake, unquote. Well, overall, night one of the Democrat convention was relatively unimpressive, although it made the most of the virtual requirements, and in some respects, it resembled more of a Hollywood spectacle than a political convention. Two speeches stood out, and that's what I really want to talk about because they really demonstrated the tactics and, to be frank, the insidious strategy of the Democrat Party as they approach the election in November. None of it should surprise us. Let's start with Andrew Cuomo, whose speech was full of lies and misstatements about what really happened in New York during the worst of the coronavirus crisis. It's really astonishing that this arrogant fool who is still governor of New York and who is willing to say and do almost anything to blame the consequences of his own incompetency and bad behavior on just about anybody else, but particularly on the president, and especially in the very areas, and this is really unbelievable because it's all on record, where the president gave him the most assistance and where Cuomo's decisions were the worst, which is something he now denies, of course. Here's what he said, quote, the failed federal government that watched New York get ambushed by their negligence and then watched New York suffer, but all through it learned absolutely nothing, unquote. He also said, Quote, we saw the failure of a government that tried to deny the virus, then tried to ignore it, and then tried to politicize it, unquote. Well, that's pretty ungrateful, considering that the president shut off travel from China when there was only one known case of COVID-19 in the entire country. When the World Health Organization was assuring him that there was nothing to worry about. And when China was lying to the world and to us, 
and to him about the severity of the disease and the outbreak that was raging in Wuhan. But speaking of denial, Cuomo called the COVID-19 the European virus. Really? Who is he kidding? That's just plain dumb. Nobody believes that the virus originated in Europe. But it may be a sign of how far Andrew Cuomo is willing to go from the truth to make his point and to also declare his own virtue. Oh, and then he said, we climbed the impossible mountain and right now we are on the other side. We did it with the kindness and assistance of so many. New Yorkers want to thank everyone who came to our aid. 30,000 Americans who volunteered to come here to help in our hour of need, unquote. Really, he left someone out, of course. He left out the president who helped him more than anyone. But I'll get to that in a minute. So here's what he failed to mention. He failed to mention that New York has the highest COVID-19 death toll in the nation by far, and that it was because of his own incompetence and bad decisions that this happened. He also failed to mention that it was his decision to write an executive order that required nursing homes, which had the most vulnerable populations, the elderly, and the physically challenged, to accept COVID-19 patients without tests and with no recourse to refuse them. Cuomo also failed to mention that the president, who he is now damning for inaction, the president provided New York with ventilators, with a fully staffed hospital ship, the Comfort, which was capable of caring for a thousand patients, and it was intended to handle the overflow of patients that Cuomo predicted would overload local hospitals. Trump also facilitated the conversion of the Jaffet's Convention Center in mid-Manhattan, which FEMA converted into a 2,500-bed hospital designed to handle the overflow of non-COVID-19 patients. By March 24th, the first phase of 1,000 beds was completed. And then on April 2nd, with the hospital and hospital ship both nearly empty, Trump arranged for both to be converted to COVID-19 treatment centers with all the necessary additional protections. Cuomo, of course, took credit and announced that the Javits Center's new mission would be to treat COVID-19 cases. But in the end, when there were so few patients in either facility, the Comfort left port and the Javits Center Hospital closed. Now, why do you suppose Cuomo neglected to mention that in his speech? Or that when the nursing homes that were forced to take in COVID-19 patients, when they pleaded to have these patients sent to the empty COVID-19 hospitals, they were flatly denied. And as a consequence, it is estimated that more than 7,000 elderly residents of New York nursing homes were exposed to the virus and died from it. 
Of course, these numbers are not certain. It may be more, in fact, because the accounting methods that they used to track the people who died from the virus were unreliable at best, for one thing, because they only accounted for people who actually died in the nursing homes and not those who were later removed and died at hospital. What this system lacked in accuracy when tracking the deaths of the elderly in the nursing homes more than made up for in creativity and shielded Cuomo from accountability. And it may be an understatement to say that the books on this were cooked. Those numbers will come out eventually, but for the moment, we're still guessing. Now here's another interesting fact. A hospital in East Harlem told the New York Post that they were provided with a 25-point checklist that they were required to fill out for each patient that they wanted to have transferred to the Javits Center Field Hospital. They requested 95 of their patients for transfer, but only one met those horribly restrictive criteria. Only one out of 95. Cuomo denies any culpability for the deadly crisis that was caused by his own mismanagement. At one point on Monday night, he actually said, quote, In many ways, COVID is just a metaphor, unquote. A metaphor. Tell that to the families of the thousands of people who died as a direct result of his executive order, who couldn't escape the virus because he insisted that COVID patients must be admitted into their nursing homes. And by the way, at the time, Cuomo expressed his gratitude to President Trump for the ventilators and for the hospital facilities. But on the first night of the Democrat convention, he slammed the president for ignoring New York in its time of need. To put it bluntly, Cuomo lied. To say that he's a hypocrite, a liar, who was guilty of causing the deaths of thousands of vulnerable people, that isn't an understatement. It's a fact. A fact that the Democrats choose to ignore. And here's another fact. This man is such an egocentric fool that he now takes credit for a miracle that never really happened. In his speech at the convention, he said, he said this, For all the pain and all the tears, our way worked, and it was beautiful, unquote. Beautiful, he said. Nearly 33,000 people died in New York State from the coronavirus. And that accounts for nearly 20% of the country's total death toll of more than 170,000. How is that beautiful? How does that make his response to the coronavirus beautiful? And here's another fact. The fact that Democrats hold him up as a model by giving him a platform on the first night of the convention that says a lot about the leadership in the Democrat Party and how they view honesty and integrity, 
in the people who represent them. It also says a lot about their own ethical standards. Now, after the break, we're going to talk about the other major speaker of the evening, the keynote speaker, Michelle Obama. She had a lot to say. And like Cuomo, her speech was full of misstatements and innuendos and plain lies. And that's what I want to talk about next. So stay tuned. I'll be right back. Hello, this is Lieutenant Randy Sutton, the host of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. I am a 34-year police veteran. I am also the founder and CEO of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called The Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens when a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled, seriously injured in the line of duty. Most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store. Now, as I promised, I want to talk about the speech of Michelle Obama. It was something that I think needs to be discussed because of its basic dishonesty. But before I do that, I want to talk about something else, and it's something I have referred to before, but I think it's relevant here. There was another speaker, a young woman whose father had died of the coronavirus. And she had written a scathing obituary in which she blamed her father's death on President Trump and on the Republican governor, Doug Ducey of Arizona. And she blamed them for her father's death. So at the convention, she spoke for three minutes and she had a lot to say. But the thrust of what she had to say was this, and I quote her, the coronavirus has made it clear that there are two Americas, the America that Donald Trump lives in and the America that my father died in. Enough is enough. Donald Trump may not have caused the coronavirus, but his dishonesty and irresponsible actions made it so much worse, unquote. Now, this is a very popular narrative among people who are essentially Trump haters. We heard it before from Andrew Cuomo, and he's far from alone. These Trump haters, these never-Trumpers, they weave the narrative around the idea that President Trump willingly and knowingly deceived the American people about the coronavirus for reasons of his own. And the problem with this narrative is that it is essentially and totally false. Now, what she has said in her three minutes of uh, national television is something we've heard all along. 
And we heard it from Cuomo, in fact, when he spoke at the convention. But here's the thing. This isn't true. And the fact that people of note or people who have the microphone for as little as three minutes who get up and blame Donald Trump for bad decisions with regard to the management of the coronavirus crisis are forgetting something very important. Donald Trump understood from the beginning that we had a serious problem. And that was why when there was only one case of this virus in the United States, he banned travel to and from China because he knew that that was the fastest way to keep the virus from spreading in the United States. But there's something else that was going on at the time, and it's, it's not given credence by the people who love to criticize the president. And that is this. The World Health Organization and the CDC were giving Donald Trump, the president, inaccurate information about the virus and its potential impact. They were claiming to have knowledge that they didn't have. They were claiming to understand the virus when nobody understood it except maybe the Chinese, and they weren't talking. And they kept giving him bad advice, and he thought, he thought that they knew what they were talking about. They seemed to know what they were talking about, Most important, he thought he could trust them. They were the experts. And it turned out he was wrong. But it was based on their advice that he shared with the American people what they told him. The first thing that they said, first WHO and then the CDC, they said that there was no evidence of human-to-human transfer. Well, that was very hopeful, and he believed it. And then they told him that even though this virus was spreading in other parts of the world, there was little for the United States to worry about. Do you remember that? I do. And it was only at the end of March when the head of the WHO announced to the world that this was, in fact, a pandemic. That was a full two months after the president had banned travel to and from China. So, first of all, it's very easy to accuse the president of not acting quickly, although he did in that situation in banning travel from China. But more than that, it's important not to disregard the fact that he was getting bad advice from people who were supposed to be trustworthy. They were his advisors. They were the experts. He's not an expert on, on uh, the transmission of viruses. He doesn't, he doesn't have a scientific background. He's a businessman. And so when they gave him this advice, he believed it. And he shared it with us because that was his job, so that he could tell us what we needed to know. And in fact, it was bad information but he got it from the experts, and they swore it was the truth. Now, we later found out that the head of WHO was big pals with Xi Jinping, 
and that he had essentially been bought by China and was relaying to the rest of the world, and in particular to the United States, what he was getting from Xi Jinping and from the Chinese Communist Party. So when people criticize the president for mismanagement of the coronavirus crisis, it's not only unfair, but I believe they're doing a disservice to the country. So let's get back to the first night of the Democrat National Convention. Now, the keynote speaker, the highlight of the evening, was a presentation by Michelle Obama, the former first lady. She gave the keynote address on the opening night of the convention, and it was, I guess, for the Democrats who were watching, the highlight of the evening. And she looked beautiful with her long flowing hair draped over her shoulders. But I was offended because the speech she gave was so full of half-truths and innuendos. It didn't surprise me, but I wish it had been more honest. It began graciously enough. She spoke about how it pained her to see how this country is hurting. And she said, quote, I'm here tonight because I love this country with all my heart. She also said, I've heard your stories, and through you I've seen this country's promise. And thanks to so many who came before me, thanks to their toil and sweat and blood, I've been able to live that promise myself. And so she has. And then she got into the politics, and it was far less gracious. First, she talked about the job of the president. She said the job is hard. Well, we knew that. No surprise there. And then she said, quote, it requires clear-headed judgment, a mastery of complex and competing issues, a devotion to facts and history, a moral compass, and an ability to listen, and an abiding belief that each of the 330 million lives in this country has meaning and worth, unquote. That's funny, to me at least. It sounds like she's talking about our president, Donald Trump. But that's unlikely, I guess. She, she must have been talking about her husband, Barack Obama. But this doesn't sound so familiar. I don't remember Obama being the least bit concerned with people whom he was committed to controlling rather than empathizing with. And he lied to us. He told us when he was trying to promote his Obamacare, he said, if you like your doctor, you'll be able to keep your doctor. If you like your health care plan, you'll be able to keep your health care plan. Unquote. But it wasn't true. And then after Benghazi, he told us that what happened in Benghazi was the result of a video made by a small-time videographer in California that insulted Muslims. And that wasn't the case at all. It was a terrorist attack, a well-planned one. But he lied to us about that, too. And then she said, quote, a president's words have the power to move markets, unquote. We certainly saw that over the last three and a half years, our stock market has been on a tear, breaking all kinds of records. 
and more companies have come back to the United States to do business here than ever before. And we've broken all kinds of records in employment, employing more blacks, more Asians, more Hispanics, more women than ever before. Surely she was talking about Donald Trump when she said those words. <laughs> but she wasn't, of course. She was talking about Obama. She said, you simply can't fake your way through this job. But between you and me, I think that's exactly what Obama did for eight years. And then she talked about Obamacare as if it were a good thing. And she talked about how they had secured the right to health care for 20 million people. But in a country of 330 million people, that's just a drop in the bucket. That means that 310 million people either had private health insurance or were just willing to pay the high tax that Obamacare imposed if you didn't sign on to the program in order not to have it. That doesn't sound like such a wonderful program to me if people will pay not to be in it. And then when she talked about the coronavirus, she made it sound as if the loss of jobs, the death, the hard time imposed by the stay-at-home orders were the fault of the president when only the state governments could impose those restrictions. And by the way, it was mostly the states led by Democrats that had the most draconian stay-at-home regulations. States like California, Michigan, Illinois, New Jersey, and New York. In Ohio, the polls were actually closed on primary election day, just hours before they were supposed to open. And in New Jersey, a curfew was imposed between the hours of 8 p.m. and 5 a.m. Nobody was allowed on the roads during those hours. Everybody was supposed to be home, and so on. It's not a function of the federal government to impose any of those kinds of restrictions at all. That's a state function. And Michelle had it all wrong. And then it probably didn't surprise anyone when she accused the White House of being a source of, quote, chaos, division, and a total and utter lack of empathy, unquote. She talked about our leaders calling fellow citizens enemies of the state while emboldening torch-bearing white supremacists. She seemed shocked that pepper spray and rubber bullets were used on people she called peaceful protesters and suggested that it was all for a photo op. But she didn't mention the looting and burning and destruction or the wild spike in violence on the street, all in the name of racial justice. She didn't talk about that at all. She did talk about the lack of civility in this country how our children witness this every day. She actually said that they watched in horror as children are torn from their families and thrown into cages. Wait a minute. Back up there. Children being torn from their families and thrown into cages? She's talking about the illegal immigrants who come over the border or who used to come over the border in enormous numbers. But children being torn from their families and thrown into cages? 
That was Barack's idea. Those cages were built on his watch. And those children were torn from their families when he was president. Trump was the president who inherited that barbaric practice and just about ended it. But then she said, quote, So let me be as honest and clear as I possibly can. Donald Trump is the wrong president for our country. He has had more than enough time to prove that he can do the job, but he is clearly in over his head. He cannot meet this moment. He simply cannot be who we need him to be for us. It is what it is. Unquote. And then she ended her speech with a testimonial to Joe Biden. That's the same Joe Biden whom her husband refused to endorse until there was nobody else in the running. And so she said this about him. She said, I know Joe. He is a profoundly decent man guided by faith. He was a terrific vice president. He knows what it takes to rescue an economy, beat back a pandemic, and lead our country. And he listens. He will tell the truth and trust science. He will make smart plans and manage a good team. And he will govern as someone who's lived a life that the rest of us can recognize. We have to vote for Joe Biden in numbers that cannot be ignored. Unquote. But she just couldn't end on a high note, although she talked about it. She had to add at the end, quote, Folks who know they cannot win fair and square at the ballot box are doing everything they can to stop us from voting. They are closing down polling places in minority neighborhoods. They're purging voter rolls. They're sending people out to intimidate voters. And they're lying about the security of our ballots. These tactics are not new, unquote. Well, they sure aren't. The Democrats have been using them for years. Do you remember back in 2008 when soldiers in the Black Panther Party stood at polling places to intimidate white voters? Do you remember that? As I said, the Democrats have been doing this for years, and no one knows better than the Obamas. Isn't this what they call projection, where you blame someone else for the things that you did? So Michelle's speech started on a reasonable note, but the lies and innuendos were really more than any reasonable and knowledgeable conservative could swallow. But of course, she wasn't speaking to us. She was speaking to the Democrats, and the Democrats loved it. No one will be ready to pull down Michelle Obama's statue anytime soon. Now, after the break, I want to talk about a remarkable breakthrough in the Middle East peace talks. And it's not what we thought was going to happen next. It's about the normalization of relations between two former enemies, the Jewish state of Israel and the United Arab Emirates. So don't go away. I'll be right back. As we say, let the silent voices be heard. Shadow Bannon, editing, censorship, blocking, and adherence to political correctness are seen as serious threats to our God-given right to free speech. 
Suppressing free speech, the very cornerstone of our society, is not in the best interest of our listeners, readers, and those who provide our content. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. What if a new treatment backed by 17,000 scientific articles was proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance? What would you pay for even the smallest dose of this treatment? Well, the good news is you don't have to pay anything because these are just some of the benefits of a full night of quality sleep. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Until now, most sleep aids haven't worked, but a new easy-to-swallow sleep gel invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM Sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM Sleep, visit HealthyCell.com sleep. That's HealthyCell.com sleep. Now there is one very positive piece of news that occurred this past week. But before I get to it, I want to talk to you about something very disturbing because I don't want to leave on an ugly note. I want to leave on a happy note. So let's talk first about what's going on in our cities. And it's so serious and it's worrisome. And it's one of the big gambles that we are facing as Americans in America as we look forward to the elections and America's future. Well, what we saw in Portland this weekend, Sunday night, was so disturbing that we can't imagine how much worse it's going to get. And it will get worse so long as the leaders in these cities, the mayors, the city councils, and beyond them, the governors of their states. They're all complicit because they are doing nothing to stop the violence and the outrageous activities that are destroying our cities. Now in Portland this weekend, surely you have all seen the video of a man and a woman whose only crimes were being white and being in the wrong place at the wrong time. They ran into a mob, were ordered out of the truck, and the man was beaten viciously within an inch of his life. The last blow was a vicious kick to the side of his head before he passed out. So what do we do when the people who are elected to be custodians and managers of their cities Do nothing to stop the looting, the burning, the destruction, and the violence. Astonishingly, they call them peaceful demonstrations. Really? How can you even think that that's normal? How can you think that that is believable? How can you think that this is acceptable? What's going on in our cities has to be stopped. It can't go on because without interference, 
what is going on in our cities now will accelerate and it will spread to other cities and it will get worse. It's the chaos that they're blaming on the Republicans and it's not coming from the Republicans, it's coming from the left. It's coming from the Marxists and the socialists and the Leninists and the communists and the anarchists. And it is going to continue so long as it isn't stopped. And if you've heard this show before, you already know that these demonstrations, as they're called, these riots, this chaos, is not spontaneous. It is being directed and funded by people behind the curtain, people with deep pockets who can pay for this indefinitely, who are committed to destroying our country, destroying America, and destroying democracy. This is something that takes on a life of its own. It has its own momentum. And if there is nothing to stop it, this momentum will keep building. And all our cities will be in flames. Nobody wants, well, I say nobody wants that, but I guess some people do because they're not willing to stop it. They're actually supporting it. You know, this whole movement to defund the police, this is part of a game plan. This isn't spontaneous. This is an anarchist game plan. And there are stages, there are steps that are documented. And this is one of the steps to make the police ineffective by dismantling their authority. Defunding the police is a great way to get it done. And for some unimaginable reason, the mayors of these cities, the city councils in these cities, are okay with it. I don't understand it. Why would anybody, anybody, agree to let rioters and vandals and arsonists destroy their city? Why? Well, I don't understand it. That's very clear. But what I want to say is this. The outcome of this, unless it is stopped and soon, the outcome will be irreversible. Our cities will be destroyed and people will move out of them. Honestly, no. who would stay under these conditions? Take New York, for example, New York City, Manhattan. Recently, it's been like the Wild West. Last week, there was a 342% increase in shootings over the same period last year. That is unbelievable. This week, in New York City, there were 53 shootings. Last year, in the same period, there were 12. On Sunday, in the first three weeks of June in New York City, there were 125 shooting incidents. And in one 15-hour span in July, there were 15 shootings, one shooting every hour. I don't have a solution for this. I I think that the president has something in mind. He's not hands-off. He's watching this very closely. And he has something. He has a plan. He always does. But I hope he doesn't wait too long. 
Because, as I said before, if this goes on for too long, it will generate its own energy and keep increasing and keep spreading. And if that happens, we are going to reach a point of no return. This is America, my friends. It shouldn't be this way. And it has to stop. Mr. President, I don't know if you're listening. I hope you are. I beg you. It's time to do something. It's time to put a stop to it. And there's another thing. These riots, this destruction, is not the only problem that our cities have. Over the last 10 years, New York City, as well as others around the country, have been hemorrhaging residents who have moved to other places where there are lower taxes, have more available jobs, larger homes at cheaper prices. They have fresh air. And this is a trend that doesn't look like it's going to turn around anytime soon. The rate of people moving out to other places in the country is accelerating rather rapidly since the coronavirus and the riots began. In fact, New York has lost more than 1.4 million residents since 2010. For some reason, the city fathers and the state fathers as well seem to feel that the way to deal with this is to raise taxes and put more restrictions on people who stay in New York City. It doesn't make any sense, but uh, we've talked about these people before. They don't make very much sense either. Anyway, this is a trend that is starting to take hold in major cities around the country. Wherever there are serious restrictions on movement and wherever there are riots and looting and chaos in the streets. America is facing major challenges right now, and it will take a strong leader in Washington to help us turn this around. So stay tuned. Big things are going to happen one way or another. Well, the first shoe has dropped in the John Durham investigation of the deep state. We've been waiting for this for a very long time. And the first shoe was Kevin Kleinsmith, a former attorney for the FBI, who is being charged for false statements. Now, his attorney, Kleinsmith's attorney, says he will be pleading guilty. What really happened is that Kevin Kleinsmith altered an email that later figured into an application for a FISA warrant that enabled eavesdropping on the Donald Trump campaign. What Kevin Kleinsmith did was basically add three words to the email that weren't there in the original email. Now, this was an official government email, and so what he did was illegal, and that's what he's being charged with. It doesn't seem like much, but this is connected to other things, and as this case develops, this may be the domino that causes all the other dominoes to fall. And we'll see. It's going to be interesting, my friends, this whole investigation into the corruption of the FBI and other agencies relating 
to Donald Trump's presidency. So we'll see. Now I want to talk to you about some news that's a little happier. Last week, Israel's Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu was sitting in a meeting with some of his senior advisors when he suddenly got up and walked out. They asked him, why are you going so abruptly? What's going on? And he said, you'll know in good time. Well, that afternoon, President Donald Trump announced an historic peace agreement between the Jewish state of Israel and the United Arab Emirates. This was a major first. Nothing like this had happened since Israel signed a peace treaty with Jordan in 1994, and before that, a peace treaty with Egypt in 1978. Since then, since these two treaties were signed, the tensions between Israel and her neighbors and the other Arab states have been palpable, and peace between them has been elusive, to say the least. Now, historically, all of the peace efforts beside the two states that we talked about were with the Palestinians. Every effort has been made by every president in recent years to bring some sort of peace accord between Israel and the Palestinians who live within her borders. The Palestinians want a state of their own. Well, actually, the Palestinians want all of Israel. And because of that, they have never actually finished a deal with Israel. In some cases, they have come very close, but at the very last minute, they walked away from the table. On other occasions, they refused to come to the table. And this has created a problem, a great problem, because the way the Palestinians carry on their feud with Israel is to wage a war of terror against the Israeli people. But what happened last week, the agreement between Israel and the United Arab Emirates will change the playing field, hopefully forever. A peace treaty with the United Arab Emirates is a wonderful move toward peace in the region. And I'll tell you why. Leaders of Western countries, and particularly the United States, have always tried to create some sort of a peace agreement between Israel and its Palestinian neighbors, or in some cases, its Palestinian residents. But what the West does not seem to understand and can't grasp is that the Palestinians don't want peace with Israel. They want Israel. They want all of the country for themselves. They've made this quite clear. In the south, in Gaza, Hamas has that written right in their charter. And the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank has made it also clear that they are not interested in peace with Israel. So that effort has been a colossal waste of time and money and a lot of effort. The last of these efforts was carried out by President Donald Trump and his team of negotiators. 
and they came up with a map of Israel and a Palestinian state that I don't think anybody would have agreed to. Certainly not the Palestinians, because the Palestinian state, as it was designed by the negotiating team, was a checkerboard of territory that was non-contiguous and was basically untenable in a real-world situation. But I have the idea that maybe that was the plan, to make this map unacceptable to the Palestinians so that the Trump team could work its magic on a larger stage to create a more powerful peace agreement between Israel and other Arab countries who hold a great deal more power and authority over the Palestinians and over the Arab world in the Middle East. This is huge, my friends. You have to understand that Israel has never been able to cement good relations with any Arab state other than Egypt and Jordan. But those two states were neighbors of Israel. And Israel has never been able to form any kind of official relationship, and certainly not one that could be made public, with any other Arab state particularly those that were not neighbors. Now, in the coming weeks, there will be delegations from Israel and the UAE who will meet to work out bilateral agreements. And these are going to include things like investment and tourism and direct flights back and forth and security. And it's going to include telecommunications and technology and energy and healthcare and culture, and the environment, and the establishment of embassies, and all kinds of other areas where they can cooperate with each other and collaborate with each other. This is, as the president would say, huge. And it's important because Iran has been making threatening noises in recent weeks, as it has for actually for years, but it has become much more dangerous, and there is a feeling in the Middle East that the collaboration of strong nations, and Israel is certainly one of them, is a very important defense against the lunacy of the Iranian mullahs. The United Arab Emirates is an important player in the Middle East, and so is Israel. And together, the opportunity that they have to create real positive change in the region is enormous. Now, we're way out of time. I only have a couple of seconds left. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been The Friedman Report.